Welcome to this podcast from Central, Jesus at the Heart. More information is available from www.jesusattheheart.org. We're starting a series this evening that fortunately for me and my embarrassment will only last three weeks. Um, but it's a, it's a series of talks that um, I feel that we, we need to, um, to work through about sex. I've called it Sex Bomb. Um, I'm the only person responsible for that. If you want to send emails, that's okay. Um, and um, really what I want to do is I want to look at what God has to say about something which is a huge thing in our culture today. What is sex? Why is sex? Who can do it? How do you, how do you get to do it? Who gets to play and, um, and all that jazz. And, uh, and to be honest, it's been a quite embarrassing day because I determined that I was going to do this same talk to all three services. And I arrived at a 9.30 service and looked around. And to be honest, it was great, but I felt like I just walked into my parents' living room <laughs> and I was going to give them some instructions on sexual intercourse. Um, but we had a laugh, and it was, it, was, it was okay. Interestingly, I feel completely the reverse tonight. I feel like I'm dad, and you've all come in, and I'm supposed to tell you some stuff, and we're supposed to not get embarrassed. So, deal? Will you help me? Four of you. Brilliant. Thank you so much. I'd love it if you turn your Bibles to the book of Genesis. That's right at the beginning, and chapter 2. And uh, we're going to read some verses of Scripture. And we're going to take a look at what today is going to be kind of an introduction, context to God and sex and God's plan for sex and your part in it. Okay, so Genesis chapter 2. And um, let me give you a, a, I nearly said a wee context. Let me give you a little context um, for this, because it's always important that when you're reading the Bible, you get the context, you understand why it's here, um, what happened before, and uh, what we're really talking about. So in, in Genesis chapter 2, Adam has been created. And Adam is like the crowning point of God's creation. He's like, um, you know, the, when God had done everything, all this other cool stuff like planets and, and flowers and hummingbirds and, and waterfalls, God gets to create humanity and he creates Adam. And then verse 18, the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. Do you know, the, the whole of the creation story is, is, a, is a poem. It's rhythmic. Uh, uh, so there was morning and there was evening the first day, and God saw that it was good, and there was morning and there was evening the second day, and God saw that it was, you know, it's kind of rhythm. The first time there's anything that's not good is when man shows up. The Lord God said, it's not good for the man to be alone. What's not good? For you and I to be lonely to be out of intimate relationship with one another. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the beasts of the field and all the birds of the air. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was his name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds of the air and all the beasts of the field. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep, and while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought it to the man. 
The man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. He's got the kind of poem thing going on. This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman for she was taken out of man. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and they will become one flesh. The man and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. Let's just pray together. Father, we... um, We love your word. We've learned to trust it, that it speaks to our hearts. We've learned to expect it to be living and dynamic and change us and transform us. Holy Spirit, we just invite you now. We invite you to speak to our experiences. Speak to our pasts and speak to our presents and speak to our futures. That we might walk in a way that is honoring to you. That we might worship you with our bodies and that you might receive glory. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So uh, this week I was telling uh, some of my girls that this was the subject for the next um, three weeks of sermons and uh, one of them's response was, oh, Dad, that's gross. You're weird. Why would you do that? And it's interesting because the girls, the same girls who uh, came back from a sex education lesson in uh, primary six and uh, came up to me, looked me up and down and went, oh, you did that with her four times? I was so tempted, but I said nothing at all. You know, contrary to, to popular opinion, we're talking about sex not because I just want to talk a lot about sex, um, but because, um, and, and, and not because it's going to be fun, because it's going to be hard, and there's going to be people who are going to get offended, because I'm going to say things that I think are true, but, but, but are hard and difficult to say and difficult to believe and difficult to follow, and people have different experiences and different heart, heartaches and different backgrounds. But I say it for three reasons. Firstly, if the church is going to exist in culture, and if the church is going to create culture, and if we're called to make a difference in this world, we we ought to have opinions about some of the main building blocks of our culture. We ought to know what to think and what to say, and we ought to know what the Word of God says. You know, so it's very, very tempting for me to put my head down above the parapet and say nothing and, and, and let you guess what I think God thinks about this kind of stuff, but it doesn't help matters. And sex is huge in our culture. It's actually, I think, overblown. It's, it, it's massive. And what you think about this and what you can do about that. And, and, and our kids are growing up in a highly sexualized culture where they're encouraged around certain norms that I think are not biblical norms, where we have a very individualistic attitude, where it's it's, it's all about me and what I get and what I can get out of life. We have a very consumerist attitude. I just want at as much as I can get. I just want at it. Where we have an incredibly hedonistic attitude. If it feels good, are we just going to do it? And we have a culture of entitlement. No one's going to tell me what I can't have. I deserve this. I have rights. And God's got some stuff to say. It's causing great pain and great grief in our culture. The second reason we need to talk about this is because we need to clarify what God says. Because I reckon if we were to do some kind of survey here today, there would be a massive spectrum of opinion 
around what we think God says about sex or what we want to think God says about, about sex, ranging from, from way over here, the extreme that God just doesn't like sex, he's not interested in sex, it's all a little bit nasty, we certainly shouldn't be doing three weeks on it, if we have to do one, it's a bit awful. You know, I was, I was in a, a small Scottish island this week, and... Um, and, and sad, sad to say that, that, that the, the, big, the big talking point of the island was that a Christian had walked into the one shop and had harangued the guy serving behind the counter in a conversation about sex and had left the shop saying that gay marriage was an abomination to God and he would judge it. And that was a kind of ringing endorsement of Christianity for most people on that island. Many people think that Christians are just anti-gay. They don't like sex very much. They're not very fun. And then there's the, the, the opposite opinion. Probably in this room there's a number of people who think this. Well, you know, if it's love and it feels like love, how can it be wrong? And my logic says if God is a God of love and, and I feel love, then how in the world can this ever be wrong? God, God must be a killjoy if he doesn't want, and there's all all these spectrums in between. And over the next couple of weeks, we're going to take a look at some of those concepts. You know, just for the record, God doesn't hate gay people. God loves gay people. And just for the record, God is a God of love. He absolutely is a God of love. But he has parameters within which he says, I want you to experience love in this world. The third reason why I want to talk about sex is because I want to set you up to have really good sex. Do you know believers should have the best sex? If you're a believer and you're in a married relationship, you should have the best sex because you have an intimate relationship with the creator of sex. So you've got inside track into what he says and how he loves and what he has to say about how you're to act. I want to set you up to have the best sex. And some of you are thinking, ooh, I'm in church. The pastor is going to teach me how to have great sex. Either that's just a bit odd, or how good could it actually be? He is weird. His kids were right. But stay with me for a moment. Let's just put it all out there. Sex is incredibly captivating. It's dynamite. And in our culture, it sells everything. The old song used to go, money makes the world go round. But I'm pretty sure in our culture, if we were writing songs around it, it would be sex that makes the world go round. It sells just about everything. And there are two dominant messages out there in our world. There's the, the message which the church seems to have been peddling for a long time. And there's a message that the world definitely is peddling right now. One is that, 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 that sex is all bad. We shouldn't really talk about it very much. And the other is that sex is all good. Just have at it. Do whatever you want. The church has been saying, or seems to have been saying for a long time, that God is down on fun. We shouldn't be talking about sex. And the problem with that kind of attitude is that, is that there's a whole generation of people who have been parented in the church who have never been taught what God has to say about sex. We had to learn it from the playground. We had to learn it from MTV. We had to learn it from our friends who were either doing or not doing the things they were telling us they were doing. And then we felt as if we were weird because we weren't doing those things. My, my dad, who was an amazing pastor and a wonderful dad, he had one 
that I can remember one sex conversation with me. He was highly embarrassed by it, and he wasn't that kind of guy who'd get embarrassed about things, but he was highly embarrassed about the sex conversation. He invited me and my, my next brother down, James, into his study, and he sat us down. I thought, this is weird, never does this. He says, right, I want to talk to you about sex. And basically, his 10-minute conversation amounted to this. Keep it in your pants and make sure you don't take hers off. That was it. And so I knew there were parameters. I, just, I knew there were certain things you shouldn't do, but I didn't know how far to push it, and I spent most of my teenage life trying to get as close to the line that I thought was there, the, 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 what it was. No one ever told me what to do, what to touch, what not to do, <laughs> where to go, what was acceptable, what God thought, why he thought these things. I want to say from the very beginning of our time together that God is pro-sex. He really likes bodies. He likes them enough to put one on. And God is really interested in the whole of your life, even the ucky bits. He's not just interested in some kind of weird spirituality that's somewhere in the middle here that's, that's deep and buried. He's interested in your body and your life. And he invented sexuality. He made sex organs. He gave us hormones. And far from being embarrassed by sex organs and hormones, he decided which bits go where and how. I better stop using my hands. And... <laughs> And in the Bible, the Bible, there's a whole book called the Song of Songs or the Song of Solomon's, Solomon. And despite the greatest efforts of many worthy preachers down through the years to find deep spiritual meaning, it's actually just a celebration of human sex. That's what it is. And we'll, we'll, do, we'll deal with some of that next week. We'll, we'll look at what, what dating is really about according to the scriptures and how you, how you honor one another and how you love one another. And we'll look at what sex should be like within, within a married re- relationship. But basically, the Song, the song of Solomon is about, is about sex. Let me read this to you. Oh, how delightful you are, my beloved. How pleasant for utter delight. You are tall and slim like a palm tree and your breasts are like clusters of dates. I will climb up into the palm tree and take hold of its branches. May your kisses be as exciting as the best wine, smooth and sweet. Or as one of my daughters would say, get a room. But you know, how can you make that about Jesus and the church? That's about sex. The writer is trying to help us understand the joy of this invention that God has. In in the book of Deuteronomy... God makes a stipulation that no young married man or woman, a man particularly, should go away to war for a whole year after they got married. There's some newly married couples here. So you're not allowed to go to war, okay? If we were at war, you shouldn't go to war. But it says this. This is really cool. I love this. It says, he, no, he should stay at home and bring happiness to the wife he has married. What does that mean? It doesn't mean put the bins out or watch Downton Abbey on a Sunday night with a glass of wine. It means have sex. Learn how to do it really well. Spend a year. That's probably going to go now with face good. (laughs) But that's what it means. That's what it's all about. Sex is good stuff given by a good God with really good intentions. So it's not all bad. We need to get over ourselves. But before you rush off into, hello, Sex isn't all bad. Let's just go for it. I need you to recognize this. Sex is not 
all good. Because the dominant predisposition of our culture is not that sex is all bad. No, no, no. The dominant predisposition of our culture is that sex is actually all good. You can have whatever you want, when you want. No one's going to tell you because no one has the right to tell you. Just go for it. And if, if that's your predominant attitude, I need to ask you to slow your coaching horses down. Because they're heading off a cliff very quickly. You see, it's not all good. I mean, Jimmy Savile, that, that wasn't all good, was it? I'm not sure that Miley Cyrus and her twerking and her wrecking ball is all good. I'm not sure it's all good that, that 13-year-old, 12, 13, 14-year-old boys in schools all over Edinburgh have either, almost all of them, have either seen pornography on their mobile phone or watch pornography regularly on their mobile phone. I'm not sure that's good at all because I think it messes with people's hearts and lives and destroys people. I'm not sure it's good that counselling services in Edinburgh are regularly dealing with numbers of teenage kids who have had sex with their partners and then filmed it and then posted it online and are dealing with the shame of that stuff. Sex is not all good. I'm not sure that it's all good that that, that the pornography industry worldwide is worth over $90 billion dollars. And when you, when you use the word pornography industry, it makes it sound so legitimate. But for, for, for pornography industry, read this. Organized crime, rape, systemic abuse, human trafficking, and the degradation of human life. And it's all just a click away. For most of us in here. Men, I think predominantly, but also for women. Sex isn't all Good. Christian Smith, who's written a, a really good book recently called Lost in Transition, The Dark Side of Emerging Adulthood, talks about the extreme binge drinking culture and the hooking up culture amongst American students. Now you need to listen to this really carefully, particularly this congregation. He makes a claim, and he seems to be able to substantiate his claim, but the claim that he makes is that 25%, that's one in four, of American college girls have been victims of rape or attempted rape. In this messed up, highly sexed, pornographically overloaded, drink-fueled culture of entitlement, there is very little room for the word no. Guys, it's not all good. It's not that it's all bad. God's given this incredible gift for use, for use within a framework, but when it spills out of its framework, it can easily be so bad. Listen to one of this culture's greatest poets and commentators. Listen carefully. You may know this. Never had much faith in love or miracles. Ooh, ooh. Never want to put my heart on the line, ooh, ooh, ooh. But swimming in your water is something spiritual, ooh, ooh. I'm born again every time you spend the night, ooh. Because your sex takes me to paradise, because your sex takes me to paradise, and it shows, yeah, yeah. Because you make me feel like I'm locked out of heaven, I was going to do sex bomb, but um, Bruno Mars, social commentator, 
so wrong and yet so right. So right. There is something deeply spiritual about our sexuality. There's something deep in the longing of human hearts for connection both with God and with other people. We're created by a God who's in relationship with himself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we're created in his image with this intrinsic need for connection at the deepest level. And, and here's what seems to have happened in our culture. Instead of that sexuality drawing us towards the God for whom we were created, instead of that desire for, for one another drawing us to God, to worship God, to come for answers to God and love for God, instead we made sex God. That's what we did. I can't tell you how many times I've had the kind of conversation after a talk like this that goes something like this. You know, Carl, your thoughts are so old school. I'm sleeping with my partner. I love Jesus. I'm sleeping with my partner and, and it just feels good and I'm, I'm in love and how can it be wrong and it just seems okay. My response is this. I completely understand your question and your issue. But the problem is not sex. The problem is worship. See, see in, in, in Romans chapter 12, the scriptures say this, present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. Worship is therefore what you do with your body. So here's the thing. With your body, I think you have a choice. Are you going to worship God with it? Or are you going to worship yourself with it? Are you going to worship God and gratify him? Or are you going to worship your boyfriend or your girlfriend and gratify them. See, the question in this world is not, are you a worshipper? That's really a nonsensical question. We're all worshippers of something or other. The question is this, who or what is the object of your worship? God or you? And Paul has already previously talked about this in Romans chapter 1. He says, do you know what? They rejected God. They rejected his way. They rejected worshipping him. That's what's going wrong in our culture. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie. They exchanged pursuing their spirituality in a relationship with God for a lie that there was something better and they ended up messed up. See, the question is primarily not about your sexual desire or your practice or even your orientation. It's about the glory of God and how he receives glory. It's a worship issue. So here's my logic, if you can follow it. If sexuality is really closely connected to spirituality, and my guess, most of us in this room are really interested in worshiping God, that's why we're here, why don't we just spend a few moments inviting God to input into his plan for sex? Just open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 2. And I want to just spend the next 10 minutes just unpacking that very short passage of Scripture and helping us understand. Not, listen, I'm not that interested in a conversation that says you shouldn't do that and you shouldn't do this and you shouldn't touch that and you shouldn't touch this and if you get close to that, you're over the line. I'm much more interested in a conversation that says what is this all about? Who is this glorifying? How is this going to bless you? How are you going to find completeness and fulfillment? How are you going to get the best sex Ever. That's what I'm more interested in. Genesis 2. In Genesis 2, we find that God has a design intention for sex. 
Now that phrase design intent comes from manufacturing. It's like it's a marriage of both form and function. The best products we know are both beautiful and functional. It's like Apple Mac, isn't it? You know, they, they work really well, but they are so strokeable. So the best, the best things. And, and God is a designer. He's an artist. And sex has this form and this function. It's beautiful and it works well. And, and God has set out the context for sex here. And we haven't got much time, but he says this, that good sex is complementary. Good sex is for a man and a woman in a monogamous marriage relationship. That's where the best sex is found. It's complementary. Good sex is creative. And this is really cool. God has enabled us to co-create with him. We have sex so that we might enjoy one another. That's good, isn't it? We have sex so that we might protect one another and care for one another and comfort one another. And we have sex so that we might join God in co-creating with him, that we might participate with God in filling and subduing the earth. We have this incredible opportunity to have kids who grow up into families, who build communities, who live in cities, who change cultures, who reflect the image of God. No one else can do this. Who reflect the image of God. It's an incredible thing. And whether you get to co-create with God through physical birth or through fostering or through adopting or through helping parent other people's kids, it's an incredible thing to see the next generation being raised up to reflect the glory of God. But above all these things, God wants you to know today, and if you hear nothing else, I need you to hear this, that good sex is covenantal. The language here in Genesis 2 is the language of covenant. So you leave one relationship, you leave your father and mother, and you're joined to another relationship, a husband and wife, and you become one flesh and you feel no shame. So good sex is for marriage. And you say, God, that's so restrictive and it's so conservative and it's so old school. Well, it may be, but it's God's design and he has reasons for it. Look, look very carefully. They became one flesh. The Hebrew word is the word ekat. It's the same word used in, in Deuteronomy in that famous passage of Scripture where the Jewish people will repeat often, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. The Lord is ekat. What we're being told is that this marriage relationship, this two becoming one, is in some mysterious way a reflection of the way in which God is three and one. He is in unity with himself and he makes covenant relationship with us. It's an incredibly beautiful thing. I want you, he says, when you get married, to be connected theologically. I want you to believe the same stuff. I want you to be connected emotionally and financially and biologically. I want you to be one. The Bible is very cool. In its wisdom, it predates science. Only since the 17th century have we been able to identify what we now know about sperm. When people before then knew that some exchange was taking place, but, but now we know that something happens in the midst of sex that doesn't happen in any other human interaction. Two organisms literally become one for the purpose of creating life. God has a context for oneness 
a covenant that he calls marriage. And he says, I want you to have great sex, but for that to happen, it has to be within this covenant relationship. It seems to me, and I've said this before, that there are two kinds of relationships you can have in this world. You can have covenant relationships and you can have transactional relationships. And I have different relationships with different groups. I have a different relationship with Tesco's than I have with Nikki. You know, if I go to Tesco's and they give me a really, really good sausage, I go back to Tesco's. And if, I, if they don't give me a good sausage, I go to Waitrose, where you get the much superior sausage. But, but if, if Nikki, who loves me, gives me good things, or Nikki, who loves me, gives me bad things, I'm not about to sack her off because we have a covenantal relationship that we will walk through this thing called life together. That's absolutely crucial for sex. Because sex is about the most vulnerable act you can ever commit. And if you don't believe me, just think for a moment of yourself completely naked and who you're comfortable being completely naked in front of. The person that you get to have sex with person that you get to be that intimate with has incredible capacity to hurt you, damage you, and injure you because there is incredible vulnerability in this. And so the marriage document is not just a piece of paper, it's a cradle of security for my vulnerability. See, if I didn't have that cradle of security whenever I had sex, there would always be a, a feeling of performance. Am I, am I doing well? And does she still like me? And is she going to walk away from me if it becomes transactional? You know, am I giving her good things? And is she giving me good things? Or can we just walk away and sack it off? And this paper says something else as well. See, I'm covenanted with Nikki to walk through this life together. But it says more. It says that she has become the standard of beauty for me. Now, my wife is very beautiful. But here's the thing I want you to know. I tell her that every morning. I love you. You are beautiful to me. And it's not just objective or subjective. It's covenantal. I have decided that she is the object of beauty. I have decided that she is the standard of beauty. And I will continue to think that. And I will continue to measure it that way. Because I am covenanted to walk with her. And it's only in that kind of relationship that I can have the vulnerability of sexual intercourse. Because I know that I'm loved. And I know that I'm accepted. I don't know about you, but I love Costco. How many of you love Costco? Come on. Costco's amazing. I'm not sure that was just a real nervous laugh that we're talking about something other than sex. Woo! Costco, thank you, Lord. So I love Costco. In fact, the best bit is if you go to Costco at sampling time. I mean, how cool is that? You get to eat your whole dinner as you go around. You ever done that? And I like to do the thing where you go past. Some of you don't know what Costco is. Get someone to take you. It's amazing. So you, go, you get some, a little bit of food and then you go around and you circle around and go back again and pretend you didn't have it the first time. And if you have kids with you, you get them to go get you food. On Friday, was it Saturday, I went to Costco. I had two lots of bolognese. I had, I think, three bits of beef with mustard. I had four sausages. I was stuffed by the end of it. But here's the thing. I never buy any of the stuff that I'm sampling. I'm not sure anyone does. 
I think the person who's, who, who's, who's giving the sample out and says, well, you'll find this in aisle number 30, they must get so bored because they know no one's going to buy this stuff. They're just eating their dinner as they go around. Here's the thing. If you treat sex like a sampling at Costco, you're not buying the stuff, you're not committed to it, you have no covenant relationship with it, you're just having some, there will always be pain for you and others. You'll always be left with an aftertaste and there will always be a residue of shame. The Jewish people understood this concept really well. And they had three words for the word love. Our English language is limited. We have one word, which makes it quite complicated because I love Arsenal, I love chicken tikka biryani, and I love Nikki. Sometimes it's quite difficult to work out by what I'm saying, what I'm meaning. (laughs) They don't mean the same things. But the Jewish people, they knew. There were three words. The first word they had was the word reya. It means I love you and you're my... Do you want to say that after me? Reya. About four of you want to say that after me. Say that after me. Reya. And that means companionship. I love you and you're my friend. And then they had another word. And the other word um, is Jewish, but it sounds Scottish. It's ahiva. Do you want to say that? Ahiva. I blossom. And that means covenantal love. It means marriage. It means I love you and I'm in it for keeps. I'm not leaving ever. I'm going to walk through this life with you. And the third word they have is the word dode. Say that after me. Dode. Now, dode means the mingling of souls. It's sex. It's intimacy. And the Jewish people knew this. They didn't necessarily always practice it, but they knew this. That you were not supposed to ahaver until you'd rayad. You don't commit to someone in a covenant relationship until they're your, before they're your friend. And they knew this. That you definitely weren't supposed to dode until you'd ahavered. Because every time you doted, before you were havered, something got broken off. Something got damaged. You made yourself incredibly vulnerable. And there was damage done to all parties. And part of the problem with our culture is that we don't know what love is. And part of the problem with our culture is we don't really know what commitment is. And part of the problem with our culture is we bought the lie of Hollywood that says it's all very simple, it's all very relaxed, and it's all very free, and you can have whatever you want, and no one gets hurt in the process, because it all ends up happily ever after. Listen to Richard Foster as he writes on this subject. He says this, sex is like a great river, which is rich and deep and good as long as it stays within its proper channel. The moment a river overflows its banks, it becomes destructive. And the moment that sex overflows its God-given bank, it too becomes destructive. Listen, I know that this has been long, but listen very carefully. This is why the hookup culture is so destructive. Because it's doed without a haver. And it will mess you up. And believe me, I have counseled enough young people who have been messed up because they dode without a haver. That's why casual sex is so dangerous because there actually is no such thing as casual sex. It is never just flesh on flesh. It is almost always heart on heart and soul on soul. Which is why every time you then break off, you leave a little bit of you 
behind. That's why pornography is so evil and prostitution is so wrong. Because of what it does to men and women created in the image of God and what it does to you and what you think about and how you think about people and how it entraps you. It is an evil, evil thing. That's why living together is not God's best. Not because he's some kind of universal killjoy, but because vulnerability outside of covenant leaves you exposed. That's why extramarital sex is sin, because it's betrayal and destructive. That's why premarital sex is not a great idea. Do you know, I am going to be faithful to Nikki. All of my married life, I'm going to be faithful to Nikki. For three reasons. One, because I love her deeply and I never want to see her hurt and I've seen too much pain two because I love my kids and I love my family I don't want to see them go through the pain of their mum and dad tearing themselves apart and three because I love Jesus and if I love Jesus I want to obey what Jesus has said and Jesus has said sex there's one man one woman in a covenant relationship for life. Now, now you can push back on me. And I'm sure some of you say, but I feel in love. How can it be wrong? I feel like I'm in love. How can, how can it possibly be wrong? How can God be, is God come kind of kill? Is he out to get me? Well, here's what I think. And once again, you may not agree with what I think. That's okay. You're still welcome here if you don't agree with what I think. There's lots of things you may disagree with. But here's what I think. I think you've been duped into that feeling. I think God the design dude has an enemy whose, whose number one tactic is to keep you living outside of the design because he knows that's, that's bad for you if he can do that. And his tactic is to confuse terms when we talk about sex. He can, if he can confuse passion with love, then he's got you. See, passion is great. I mean, bring on passion. I'm all for passion. I'm really glad of passion. But passion is different from love. Passion is a chemical reaction. Passion means I fell in love, but it's not the same as love according to the scriptures because love is to give yourself in service to another person and give worth to another person at deep cost to yourself. That's love. If in an act of passion I choose to engage sexually with another person, that doesn't make it love. It doesn't make it making love It means I'm exercising my passion. Passion outside of covenant is not love. Some of you struggle with all this and there's a whole stack of great wisdom that we could give you about what you should do and what you shouldn't do and what you should touch and what you shouldn't touch and what you should watch and what you shouldn't watch and who you should run away from and who you shouldn't run away from and all that kind of stuff. If if your question really is that you love her or you love him, then love him, love her. It's called marriage. Covenant. Commit. Do it. Be in it. We'll talk next week about about dating and how to choose your, your life partner. I want to finish with three thoughts. One, 
I'm not trying to beat up on anyone. I mean, if you've sat there and you felt condemned, you know, I'm sorry, I've, I've never meant to feel, make sure that anyone feels condemned by what I'm saying. I think we're all in the same boat. We're all messed up. We've all done things we shouldn't have done. We've all seen things we shouldn't have seen. We've all have the potential to feel, feel shame. I, I got married as a virgin by the grace of God. Absolutely by the grace of God. I messed up so often. My dating life was catalogued by passion and not a lot of love. By using people in a way that I'm not at all proud of. So if you're, you're sitting there thinking it's alright for him, he's a married guy, four kids, you know, it must be okay, it's easy. No, it's not easy. It's difficult. I don't get out of bed every morning and think, wow, yes, I'm up for this, I'm up for Jesus, I'm going to worship him, come on. Sometimes I get out of bed and think, oh, I've got to do this. I don't want you to feel condemned. And second thought is this. I wonder if this is a great opportunity, this series, maybe even tonight, to bring your brokenness to a God that loves you. Because God, God, God is here not to condemn you, but to free you. God's not in the business of of pointing things out in your life just so that you feel shame and guilt. In fact, he wants to remove shame and guilt. Sometimes he will put his finger on something because you need to deal with it for your good and for the good of other people. But always it's to free you up, set you free, and give you life. One of the names that God has given is the word in the name Jehovah Rapha, the God who heals. In fact, the better translation is this, Menda forever isn't that cool God is the mender forever he loves to take your broken relationships your messed up lives your pornography addiction the times you spent with prostitutes your sleeping around the way in which you rate women by the way don't do that One person is a child created in the image of God. Get to know them, love them, don't rate them, don't give them scales. He's able to take all that and he's able to mend it and heal it and restore it and glue it all back together again. Say, let's go again. We'll all make more mistakes, but let's go again. God wants to give you the best sex life. But he says it fits within a parameter. Let's pray. So let's just ask the Holy Spirit to come. Holy Spirit, thank you that you've been present with us this evening. And I pray that um, just in these moments you would remove anything that was of the preacher that was just fleshy, not very helpful. Just lose it. But anything that was from you for us, would you sink deep into our hearts? Would you bug us, challenge us, and ultimately free us? Because we want to worship you, Jesus.
We want to live our lives differently. We want to be free. We want to be whole. We want to be a witness to what you do in this world. So come Holy Spirit. Come Holy Spirit. Pray Holy Spirit that you would remind us that you're a God of forgiveness who puts our sins behind your back as far as the east is from the west. You don't remember our stuff. That's great. And I pray just in these moments you'd help us get free. Because we don't want to live in that guff anymore. We want to live freedom. I wonder if um, one of the, let's, every eye bowed and every eye closed and every head bowed. I wonder if um, one of the things the Lord was speaking to me about this morning was this issue of pornography. And, um, you know, it's so, it's so difficult because it so imprisons people. It so causes guilt and shame, prevents you walking in truth messes with your relationships and the way you see women and men particularly the guys but it can also be the girls and I wonder just um, if you'd love to be free of that you know the stuff that you, you don't feel proud of when you've watched it and seen it and you feel shame and you don't like feeling that way but you can't stop doing it and he's, I don't know how to handle this very easily but I know that you can be free of that and I know that it's a private thing and I know that some of you find this very difficult but listen I'm your pastor and I don't want to condemn you or judge you I just want you to be free so I wonder just um, in the quietness if uh, if you just like to here's a weird thing if you just like to look at me if this is your thing and I will pray for you and then we'll worship Jesus and we'll ask him to set us free this is between you and me and God bless you thank you yes thank you thank you yes Lord and so Father I pray by your spirit you would come and because of the cross of Jesus and because of the blood of Jesus you would heal and you would forgive and you would break off any hold the enemy has on these my brothers and sisters and this would no longer be an issue and every time there's a temptation to go back there there would be like the Holy Spirit's power in between you and that button and in between you and that thing that you're going to watch and you would know he's enabling to stop you doing it. Because that's not his best for you. And you'd be free from this moment onwards. I pray this in the name of Jesus. For his glory.